Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror. Just quickly before we get on to today's interview with Professor Georges Lassimer, uh, you might notice within the interview that there's a slight change in sound quality. Uh, this is because part of the interview was recorded over Skype and part uh, in person. The reason for this was some technical issues that we were having on first recording. However, I hope it doesn't detract from what I feel was a really interesting interview. So, hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. This podcast was recorded on August 3rd, 2017 at 3.30pm, and actually in a second part on August 30th, 2017 at about 3pm as well. Both times are GMT, and the reason it's done in two parts is... Well, I messed up. I messed up with the recording and uh, I had to had to re-record one of the parts. So obviously, if in the time after and in between this, that there's been any significant events which took place in the time after recording, we were obviously unable to cover them in our discussion. If you want to find out more about upcoming podcasts or anything else we do here at the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash t-e-r-c. There you can find out information about our MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, our Terrorism and Extremism book series with IB Tours, and so much more. Also, for the most up-to-date information, be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. Okay, that's all about us and the site, so let's get on with today's interview. It's my great pleasure to welcome onto the pod Dr. Jorge Lasmar from the Department of International Relations at Puc Minas, Brazil. Jorge holds a PhD in international relations from the LSC and also has a background in international law and is licensed by the Brazilian Bar Association. He is currently Director of Legal Affairs of the International Association for Security and Intelligence Studies. His research focuses on international law, counterterrorism, and security studies. He has a new book just out in Portuguese with the translated title of Passport to Terror, Volunteers of the Islamic State. Working as a lawyer and consultant, he has worked with a number of government and private agencies in Brazil and is also involved in crafting Brazil's first certification on money laundering and the prevention of terrorist finance. It's a great pleasure to have George uh, with us today. So let's get on with today's interview or the second part of the interview as strangely, it's the, the first part that we have to record again. So uh, George, thanks for being here and thanks for coming back onto the pod after my uh, technical mishap. No, thank you. It's my pleasure. So as we did in the first time, the first uh, question that uh, I'd like to ask is, how did you get involved in this uh, type of research? Well, I used to work at the international law firm that also acted as a kind of a think tank. So we used to do research besides the legal advisement. And when 9-11 happened, we started seeing all, the, all these changes in international law in our practice, affecting actually our everyday practice. And we didn't understand much about it. So we decided to start looking into it and decided to organize a, a book. So we call various specialists from different fields of law and start asking them how what they know about terrorism, how were affecting their practices. And so it starts ever since I got, I fell in love by the subject and ever since I've been working on terrorism. And in that, in that period of time when you started getting this book together, um, obviously you were working in Brazil at the time. Was there, did you find that there was much being done in Brazil about terrorism or uh, was it, was it, um, just left empty oh actually no we that was actually one of the biggest motivations for, for the book itself when we started looking into it we couldn't find anything written in portuguese so we decided okay we have to do something about it we have to start writing in portuguese and it's still today i must say we have a, a dearth of good literature on terrorism studies in portuguese and do you do you think that this is something that's holding terrorism studies back, not just the fact that there isn't much written in Portuguese, but that there's outside of um, 
outside of being written in English, there is there is a significant lack of uh, of terrorism research being published in other languages. I definitely think so. Uh, the problem is, as I see it, is not so much the, the language itself, but also the fact that everything has a very Eurocentric or American-centric view of terrorism and counter-terrorism. And I do think that we need to bring up non-Western approaches and understand the regional diversities, the regional specificities, both for terrorism studies and for the practice and studies of counter-terrorism. And how do you think we can uh, we can go about changing this? I know um, yourself and your colleague, uh, Dr. Rashmi Singh, recently had a very successful conference um, bringing some some global terrorism experts to Brazil uh, to be engaging with uh, terrorist academics there. Do you think this is the way forward or what, what else needs to be done? Yeah, I think definitely uh, to do the academic dialogue is uh, one way forward to have a bigger presence of um, non-eurocentric authors in the discussions to be able to have more access to the main journals. But also to have a dialogue between the academia and the practitioners. I think it's very important, especially in a field like terrorism studies, to also understand the, the practitioners, what they go through, and to understand that they have very uh, important specificities depending on where they are, depending on the cultural uh, environment, depending on the society. They have um, different different resources needs, they have uh, different technology at their disposal. So I think this needs to be talked through. And you, you've done this yourself in, in regards to your new book, uh, Passport to Terror, because your co-author, as we'll discuss later on in the podcast, he's, um, he's a police officer, am I right? Yes, that's right. Uh, and it's very interesting because when we start uh, talking and, and studying, discussing this subject, a lot of the things that uh, I have learned or studied that would be applied to counterterrorism in places like, say, the UK or the United States, they would be just impossible to implement here. Mm-hmm. So everything from the, the, the population's culture and their openness to anti-terrorism measures to resistance within the very government about adopting anti-terrorist measures all the way to resources. So the Federal Police in Brazil, for example, is seriously understaffed. They lack uh, resources. So that makes more difficult. So you have to understand the specificities when discussing. And, you know, terrorism is something that happens globally, not just locally. The terrorists, they will cross the borders. They will act in, in different countries, throughout different countries. So it needs to be a joint effort between the, all the different countries. And we still have a lot of issues, not only going from the cooperation between the countries, but also uh, an understanding on the countries itself about how to do counterterrorism, what's the most proper model, and so on. And we're going to see, we're going to hear from you in our discussion later on about the, the various challenges that Brazil has faced uh, in countering terrorism or in even getting uh, counter-terrorist legislation into law. And that's a, it's a fascinating uh, d- uh, discussion that, that will take place later in today's, uh, in today's podcast. But before we get on to that and get on to talking about your own research, um, I want to talk to you about the research that influenced you, the research that influenced your career. And you've selected four different pieces. Uh, now, there are three pieces of academic research, and then, differently to the majority of, of my guests, uh, you've picked uh, a novel as well. And we'll get on to that novel in a second. I, I know the story behind it, and I think it's, it's a great story, and it shows how uh, non-academic texts can influence, uh, can influence your research career as well. But I want to start with the the piece that is one of the most uh, cited as being influential by our podcast guests and that's Walter Reich's books book Origins of Terrorism Psychologies Ideologies Theologies States of Mind published in 1990 um what was it that influenced you about Reich's edit collection here 
Well, um, when we start, when I started researching about terrorism, so the the first book that I have come across was the Gilbert Guillaume, that mm -hmm. we're going to talk about it in a minute. Yeah. Walter Resch was the first book that I read that was more specifically driven to terrorism studies, and uh, we had <clears throat> what I found fascinating was both the interdisciplinarity of the book. We have a lot of things from psychology but also the fact that they ha you have in-depth case studies. So that was very different from what I have read before about, you know, this is the history of terrorism, these are the definition throughout the history and stuff. So the book actually showed me how research on this field is actually done. So I said, okay, that's interest, that's uh, what I, I'm, I'm aiming to do. So articles, even though the the book is a bit outdated, but articles like uh, Martha Crenshaw's The Logic of Terrorism or Brandura's article on Mechanism of Moral Disengagement, they're still so current. I still use them with my students, actually. So it was uh, really a huge impact. And what way do your students react to them when uh, when they receive them now? Or do they... Do they still find them worthwhile, even though, as you said, it, some may feel that they're outdated, published in 1990? Uh, yes, I mean, the, the logic of terrorism is still a classic text. I think it's very important for, when, for students that are having the first contact with terrorism studies to understand that terrorism is not something irrational, it's not about uh, craziness, to understand there is a whole logic and rationality behind it. Um, also, still nowadays, the, the description of the mechanism of moral disengagement has been helping my students and even some of my police students to understand the question and the process of radicalization, for example. So they can understand that uh, it's a process that happens over time, that uh, we have these moral barriers that are slowly eroded and the persons start actually accepting violence and radicalizing themselves. Yeah, and this is like, I think this is a message that's coming through from all our guests uh, in relation to the research that influenced them and continues to influence them is just because something was published in a pre 9-11 era doesn't mean that it should be discarded and be seen as irrelevant today. There's, there's some great knowledge and wisdom in books like Reich's book here and in the writings of people like like Martha Crenshaw um it, it's it it's definitely some uh, there are definitely pieces that should not be ignored um you'd said there uh, that the first terrorism book that you uh, you came across was Gilbert Guillaume's uh, Terrorism International could you uh, talk to our listeners about that what uh, it's possibly not a book that would be as familiar to them as Origins of Terrorism. So could you give an overview of that book and how it influenced you? Yeah, well, we started looking for books, like we discussed before. Uh, I started looking at what we had in Portuguese. We couldn't find um, anything. So I started looking to books published in other languages. And Gilbert Guillaume, exactly a former French judge from the National Court of Justice, so because of the legal background, I found him and found his work. So it was actually the first book on specifically on terrors that I could find at the time. And uh, in this book, he describes uh, generally about terrorists. So it was a, a very good introduction to terrorism studies. So he speaks about the, the history of terrorism, how the word came up, the different phases of terrorism. So it gave me a good general overview, but it's still with a more legal uh, focus with a legal background. And so it's the first book that made me understand what terrorism studies is in general was about. And would you still go back to that book now today? Do you still refer to it or is it something that inspired you at the beginning of your career and you've moved on from it now? Well, I still use some parts of it on the Terrorism 101. Uh, I find the historical part about the description and how the word terror came up on the Latin languages and, and descriptions like that very interesting still. But it's more a historical reference than than anything else. So the, the next book that 
we have on, uh, uh, on your list is Thomas Schelling's The Strategy of Conflict. What was it about, about this book? Uh, how did this influence your career? Well, when I, I read Thomas Schelling as an undergrad student, and at the time I was much more interested in international political economy than security studies. And when I read Thomas Schelling, that was the book that actually gripped me and made me move from IPE to uh, international security. I find fascinating about Thomas Schelling, uh, especially two things. The, the first one is that he works with non-comparative games. So when we talk about uh, terrorism, it's, it's very clear. Thomas Schelling works on how people can commit themselves to promises and threats. And when you deal with counterterrorism, when you deal with uh, insurgency, I find it that it's absolutely necessary that you understand how these dynamics of promises and threats work. But more valuable for me, and uh, another big eye-opener, is this idea that the games can have multiple equilibria, so that you can have more than one solution for, for the problems. So I find this is very important because this brings the idea that the uh, environment and history can affect the results. It, it opens the door for cultural and environmental factors to influence the human behavior. And the more I study counterterrorism, the more I study terrorism, I am more and more convinced that we have to look at the regional level, that we have to understand the regional specificities, the regional culture, and understand how they influence how they behave, how they can be fought, how they can co-opt new um, new members, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so it's not just about understanding the individuals, it's not just about understanding the groups, but we need to understand these environments as well. Um, it's and but this 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 notion that there there's more than one uh, solution, there's more than one um, there's more than one way to to change things, to influence things. This is, this is something that when you look at it from a counterterrorism perspective, it, it opens up great opportunities then to, to be thinking, uh, thinking outside the box and not be just thinking the, the same way and doing it the same way that others have done it and taking into account the environment, taking into account all different aspects in relation to it. It's, it's vitally important. Um, and you talked there about at the beginning uh, about promises and threats. Could you go in a bit more detail about that, about what was Schelling talking about there and, um, and how that can influence uh, terrorism and counterterrorism studies? Well, Thomas Schelling talks about the idea of focal points, the idea that even in the most intractable conflicts, you can find uh, common ground to find solutions. So I think this is very important when we think about um, insurgency scenarios, where we, we think about how to bring these groups to the civil society and to end violence. He also talks a lot about the credible commitment and how this can influence the, the work. And both terrorism and the government, they, they try to make their threats as credible as possible. But the problem is that this can lead to escalation of violence. So the idea that you have multiple equilibria and multiple solution, I think it's also important to, to think that this shows us that there is not one size fits all solution. So that goes back again to what we were saying, that uh, these dynamics of promises and threats needs to be understood locally. We need to understand the nuances and how they work so that we can be able to work it and try to, to lower the violence levels in, in conflict regions. And this actually reminds me, um, when you're talking about the credible threat from the government, uh, it reminds me of uh, research carried out by Erica Chenoweth and Laura Dugan, which was discussed in two previous podcasts, where they looked about counterterrorism in Israel. And it was talking about that the most effective uh, counterterrorism was, wasn't in relation to, to a threat, but it was in relation um, to facilitating the Palestinian population in certain ways that was credible and consistent across time um, and that uh, this is the time that it was it was most successful um, rather than the the um, 
the aggression, the aggressive counterterrorism. It was more uh, facilitatory in in means, and but not when it's just appearing once, but when it's consistent and appearing, and it can therefore be be seen as as credible as well. And the final piece that you've noted as being influential to your career is the the novel that I was talking about earlier that I mentioned. It's G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday. Why was this influential to your career? What was the story behind this? Well, um, right before I was leaving for my PhD, um, I had a conference and they held a, a dinner afterwards. And in this dinner, I met one of the Brazilian former ministers of finance, and we were discussing our shared love by literature. And um, he asked me about my PhD. When I talk about it, he said, oh, you have to read this book, The Man Who Was Thursday. And he said, you know, I will not give spoilers, but when you read, you, you will understand why I think it's so important for someone who works with counterterrorism. So the story is basically about a poet called Gabriel Syme who somehow managed to become a policeman and infiltrates the Central Anarchist Council. So the High Council of the Anarchists was formed by seven leaders. Uh, each one was a weekday and he ended up being Thursday. And the whole book is about how he tried to find the leader, which was Sunday. So I will not tell the rest of the story because that's a big key on how influencing, but it's a big spoiler. Mm-hmm. What I can say is that um, the book is full of paradoxes. There, there are I find it fascinating. So, for example, the, the the very fact that the anarchists have a governing body, for example, or the fact that Gabriel in himself was an anarchist, a rebel that rebelled against rebellion, or the idea that anarchists held property, or that another threat for the society besides anarchists were the very rich. And when we go deep into terrorism studies, we start reading the discourses, the practice of terrorist groups, and even the government itself, we find so many paradoxes. So I think this is also a good reminder for us of how uh, human nature is contradictory in itself and how this also reflects on our work. Very good. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a book that I'm going to have to pick up and read now. I want to, I want to find out now exactly what happens at the end. It's uh, yeah, it's it just shows that that it doesn't have to be research that is influencing our career and influencing the way we uh, we think. It can be it can be a fictional novel like the one that you've put forward there. So they're the pieces that influenced your career. But what? we want to focus on now for the rest of the podcast is your own work your own research later on we're going to focus on uh, your two most recent pieces that you've selected one that's focusing on brazilian approaches to terrorism and counterterrorism, and the second the book that i mentioned in the introduction passport to terror but before that i want to focus on uh, your first two pieces um Two that reflect your international law background. The first is managing great powers in the post-Cold War world. And the second is the global war on terror, jus ad bellum, a normative change in international law. Um, Could you give a background first onto onto what these pieces were trying to achieve uh, and what your key findings were? Well, these are two early pieces that actually are a continuation from my inspiration to dig into terrorism studies. Like I said, my my interest in the subject started when I started seeing my practice being altered by what was happening with the global war on terror. So when I went for my PhD, I decided to study exactly that, how the war on terror impacted on many aspects of uh, international law. And these two pieces are a byproduct of that. So yeah, the the first one, works how about how the states manage themselves and how the, the terrorism becomes a new kind of state, uh, a new kind of threat to the international society. Because so far until the end of the Cold War, most of the threats were in between states. And then suddenly you have a non-state actor that actually is threatening the, the survival of international society, or at least in its course, they're trying to portray it as an existential threat to international society in itself. So it digs into the subject. 
And the second piece works more about how uh, specific aspects of um, the Jews at Bello and human rights are affected by the war on terrorism. And for, for our listeners who, who mightn't know uh, what it means, what does Jews at Bello mean? What's that referring so the, to? The Jews at Bello are the rules, uh, the rules on war and the use of force. It basically uh, works on when the states can use a force or not. And the human rights is, of course, the protection of the individual and most um, most deep rights that, that we have. And what were the what were your your main findings from from first of all the managing great powers piece? What did what did uh, what were your conclusions? Uh, my conclusion is that the, the war on terror, as it was portrayed, especially by the Bush administration, it was actually aimed at the states, the other states of the national society, as much as it was directed to the terrorists. So it was about uh, trying to forward a new understanding, a new meaning for the unipolarity in the unipolar world after uh, the end of the Cold War. And for the second piece, one of the interesting, and again, we go back to the multiple equilibrium, multiple solution, is that the different branches of international law, the different institutions, they were affected differently by the war on terror. So, for example, when we talk about the rules of engagement and the rules of war, they were deeply affected after 9-11. You had uh, many United uh, the Security Council resolutions, you had many new legislation that changed the way the, the states understood how they should engage in, in threats, and especially non-state uh, threats like terrorism. But when we look at human rights, the changes were actually not inside the human rights, but they were external to it. You didn't have many changes in human rights itself, but a lot of uh, counter-terrorism, new rules and norms, started eroding some of the boundaries of human rights. For example, the case of the enemy combatants, which they were denied both humanitarian law, the access to humanitarian law, which is the protection of non-combatants in case of war, and human rights. And do you, in your analysis here, uh, in both of the pieces, how did you view the role of the United Nations throughout this, uh, throughout this period? Well, that's a very tricky question. The United Nations has been very limited in their action. The structure of the Security Council itself imposes a big limit, and especially the, the P5 and the power of veto. But the problem is that I do think that the situation would be much worse resulted, because wanted or not, it does place certain constraints in international society and how states work, even though it's far from perfect. And so that's the, the role of the United Nations. But the, one of the questions that a lot of people would have is, do you feel that, that this global war on terror has, do you think from a state perspective, and in particular one state, do you feel that it's, um, it's further strengthened uh, United States hegemony or do you, has the U.S. actually been weakened as a result of this internationally? Well, um, what I see is that they definitely managed to change some of the meaning of uh, warfare as an institution, the use of force in international society. They managed to include the idea that non-state actors can become a threat to the international society. They did portray the idea that to be a superpower, you need to have the capacity to work offshore fighting these abilities. But the way the global war on terror was conducted caused a huge loss of leadership for the United States. So uh, when we talk about hegemony, we're talking both about the power of imperium, which means the, the force itself, the military power, the economic power, but also what we call the direction power, the power to convince others to agree with your ideas, with your leadership. And I think the United States has suffered a lot on the leadership, loss of leadership. So I think that we cannot actually comfortably say that the United States achieved hegemony after that. And so these two pieces were written in 2011 and 2012. 
have you seen any major changes um, that would make you revise both of these articles since? Well, uh, unfortunately, no. I mean, even with the Obama administration, even though he was very vocal against uh, the war on terror and we had what we call a desecuritization, meaning that the war on terror came out of the global agenda, came out of the global news, in practice, the, the, the activities, the practice, they kept the same. So we have to remember that the same um, uh, counterterrorism advisor for Bush was the same counterterrorism advisor for Obama. Uh, Obama had many more drone strikes than the Bush administration and so on and so forth. But because Obama was much more charismatic and got this outside of the headlines and the main agenda, that uh, had a, um, an unwanted effect, which was the normalization of this state of affairs. So if you can, in a certain way, unfortunately, the, the damage is still ongoing. And has this persisted under Trump? Well, definitely, though, dropping, I think it's something else completely, right? Mm. Uh, what we have been seeing, and for most of the people linked to the Americans, uh, American administration or American academia that I've been saying, is that what we see is actually a lack of uh, counterterrorism strategy. Mm-hmm. So we still have to see how this will impact overall. I mean, yeah. 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 And that's, but that's one, one country, and obviously the main country that a lot of people focus on in relation to the global war on terror. But how did, how have you found uh, this affecting, or how have you, yeah, how have you found this affecting other countries? Um, sp- specifically, has have you seen their role change in and the their utilization of international law and the respect from human rights? Are there any other key examples? Well, we, we do. I did find that uh, a few other countries that had internal domestic problems, they they started having um, following the American example. So we can see, for example, the case of Pakistan, and even so, to some extent the the UK. I always uh, remember when the Anti-Terrorism Act came out in the UK, it was directed against foreigners. So there was a case on the European Court of Justice that said that this was discrimination. And what the UK did then, instead of um, applying just for foreign, said, okay, so then we apply for everybody, foreign, foreigns and nationals alike. So this kind of um, very strong legislation became um, the norm in many countries. I also found that countries that were very vocal against the war on terror, so let's say France or Germany, for example, they did this on the discourse level, but they still did not anything more concrete to fight it. They allowed the the flights, they helped with some arrests and so on and so forth. So this all helps to the normalization of the situation. And so with all this in mind um, and the challenges that are facing international law, how would you recommend from your findings, how should international law be equipped to deal with these non-state actors? Well, I do think that uh, the international law is very state-centric based still. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges, how to open international law for the global civil society and how uh, the civil population could have more access to international law instruments, how they could have more pressure against states' abuse, and so on and so forth. I think that's a a big challenge. And that goes back to the United Nations roles as well, because in the end, one of the biggest problems with uh, the United Nations is exactly that they will condemn the Taliban, they will condemn uh, bin Laden, al-Baghdadi, but in the end, the resolution has to be implemented by states. So it's very state-centric as well. And we look with problems such as the environmental degradations or drugs or the case of terrorism itself. It's all non-state-based threats. So I think this is a, a huge challenge. 
So they, they should listen to Schelling and find out that there's actually more than one solution. It's more than the state-centered solution to these, these ongoing problems. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I want to get on to a chapter that, like, I'm learning so much from doing these podcasts about everyone's writing, but this is probably the chapter that I learned the most from because it was a topic that I really didn't know. It's your chapter uh, for Michael Boyle's upcoming book, and it's about uh, Brazilian approaches to terrorism and counterterrorism in post 9-11 era. It's titled When the Shoe Doesn't Fit. Um, it's coming out in 2017. It was a really fascinating uh, piece. Rather than telling you what I found most interesting, could you give the listeners just an overview about what this chapter was about and about terrorism and counterterrorism in Brazil? Okay, so this is a chapter on the current situation of uh, counterterrorism in Brazil. And actually, there is a, a bit of a historical overview as well. And once again, as we were discussing earlier, one of the main points is that. Uh, one, should, one size does not fit all, right? So one of the big problems is exactly that um, we, can't, we can't just take the models that we have in the US and Europe and the UK and just transport back because that's simply not the reality in Brazil. So uh, it's very interesting because it's been changing a lot, but until very recently, Brazil was a very interesting case because the... Um, the first things that people always ask, okay, but why Brazil? What does Brazil have to do with terrorism? Brazil has no terrorism. If you look at the GTI index, for example, Brazil is always on the lowest level. You don't have any major attack in the last 30 years, for example. But the fact is that when you're talking about that, you're talking just about a terrorist attack. But if you think about that terrorist activity is actually a whole chain of interconnected actions. You have the financing, the recruiting, the preparing for the attacks, and then you have everything that happens afterwards, the, the attack. We will see that Brazil is actually not free from terrorism. So if you go back to the 80s, for example, uh, and we get the bombings in Argentina in 92, 94, the AMIA cases, and we got the report we can see that uh, there are many links between those two bombings and Brazil. If we look carefully throughout the police records, we can actually find a few cases. So we have a famous operation called the Panorama Operation, where they arrested people across 10 different states in Brazil. Okay. And they were linked to the financing of terrorists. We had um, two persons linked to the Jihad Media Battalion, which is a group linked to the Al-Qaeda that were arrested in Sao Paulo. And when was that? That was 2005 and 2006. Okay. So what happens is that until very recently, Brazil did not have a law against terrorism. So technically terrorism was not a crime. So what happened is that any of these cases, they would be judged or persecuted under other crimes. So, for example, murder or destruction of public property or use of false documents and so on and so forth, but not terrorism. And why, why did Brazil, like obviously we've got that context that you were talking about, that uh, well, Brazil hasn't suffered terrorist attacks and so on and so forth, but why and how did they not have uh, it in the, the legal statutes any law against terrorism? Well, that's, um, for me, this is linked especially with the situation of the federal government. Uh, until very recently, we had the Labour's party uh, governing the, the country. And we have to remember that Brazil was a dictatorship between 69 and 89, 64 and 89. And many of the high-level politicians that we have today, they were actually accused of being terrorists during the dictatorship. Okay. So uh, traditionally in Brazil, terrorism is a big no-no. So in Brazil, nobody could say the T word. So working with the protect protectioners, one of the things that we would see very clearly is that when you talk to the police and you talk to other agencies, they will say, yes, we do have a problem. We do have activity here in Brazil, but the federal government wouldn't want to recognize this. Mm -hmm. 
you also have a lot of misinformation. So um, it was very common to hear in Brazilian corridors things like, oh, Brazil is a pacifistic country. We don't have terrorism at all. Or even, um, I, I've seen this, people saying, okay, but if we have a terrorism law, anti-terrorism law, it will bring terrorism to the country. doesn't matter the context, doesn't matter what, just the fact that you have the law, you have this problem. And who is this politician saying this? Or? Mostly at the Congress, okay. which is a problematic, because they are the ones who make the law. Yeah. Uh, I went, this is... A, also, we have a lot of uh, political in-game going on. I, I, I gave a few congressional testimonies, and in one of them, I started actually saying that, you know, this should not be a partisan discussion. This is a technical problem. We need to deal with it as technicians, not as a political issue. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I finish speaking, one of the MP turns and say, oh, but this is because of that political party that doesn't want, the other one say, no, this is Venezuela that wants to do this, the other one, no, it's the other party that, and became something else, mm-hmm. completely different. Mm-hmm. And so the, the law was always charged and would never go. And I found, like, I was, as I said, I was fascinated by this, by this chapter, and that's the piece that fascinated me, it was this this whole argument around the legislation um, and bringing terrorism into uh, Brazilian legislation. Um, But the way that it was finally brought in, uh, the way that two urgent counter-terrorism bills were brought in, I found it was just as fascinating uh, as the fact that it was uh, non-present for so long. And it's linked to a uh, political corruption scandal. Could you give the listeners just a, a, an insight into, yes, into that? I, I learned so much by this. It was like seeing shelling yeah. <laughs> in practice yeah. and, and others. Um, so discussion in Congress was always uh, barred and stopped because of political reasons. And a series of divergent political interests at play. But what happened is that by the end of 2015-2016, the FATF and COAF, which are the international organizations that deal with the money, international money laundering and the financing of terrorism, start pressuring Brazil by the fact that we didn't have a law against terrorism. Okay. So they say you need to have a law that criminalizes the financing of terrorism. And Brazil would say that, no, we don't have a terrorism problem and the money laundry law is very broad, so we can actually get any cases. Also, we don't have any Brazilian in the freeze list, so we don't have to deal with this problem. Mm-hmm. And the co-op say, okay, but that's not true. The law might be broad, but doesn't get all the cases. So, for example, the use of uh, resources by terrorist groups for non-terrorist reasons, for example. Mm-hmm. wouldn't be a crime in Brazil anyways. And it's also not true. We had a few cases in Brazil involving. So, for example, a very interesting case was the bank ABC, the Roman Bank Corporation. The problem is that the Brazilian branch was going to send the money over for the shareholders. And in one of the shareholders was Gaddafi's son. Okay. And he was on the freeze list. Okay. So the... The DA's office actually got the court order to freeze, but there was no law, no procedure, no legal procedure. So they invented, they created a new procedure that they called the uh, implementation of compulsory UN resolutions and showed to the judge. And then because the judge saw the word terrorism, he got scared and said, okay, let's freeze the assets. But we actually have no laws to, to do it. So... Brazil was under a lot of flag for that. Mm-hmm. So basically, the FATF threatened to start sanctions against Brazil. And so this subject got, as in the Congress, got an emergency tag. That means that nothing else can be voted until the subject of these laws are approved. Now, meanwhile, in the background, the Brazilian context, we're living a very convoluted period where the president was being impeached. And, um, and the leader of the Congress was actually against the president and trying to oust her. 
but a lot of corruption charges start to appear against him. Mm-hmm. So what he was trying to do was to approve a series of laws that would undermine the government by increasing spending, public spending, for example. Mm-hmm. But he couldn't approve anything because the anti-terrorism laws were with the tag of emergency and nothing could be voted until that was solved. Okay, so it was actually that political scandal that pushed this forward that you had to get through. Exactly. And how have those laws worked since they've been implemented? Well, uh, the terrorist law ended up being quite flawed. It uh, was very different from the initial discussions. It got a lot of uh, political issues involved. But uh, one of the main problems of it is that it says that to be a terrorist crime, it needs to be for prejudice or crimes against xenophobia, races or religious mm-hmm. motivations. So if it's not a prejudice-related action, it would be, technically it would not be considered as terrorism. Mm-hmm. So what if we have a traditional, typically political terrorism, or if we have an issue terrorism, for example, as a eco-terrorism, for example, it wouldn't be classified as terrorism. And do you think... Do you think that it was uh, the politicians' own history that, that brought this focus in, that it was by focusing purely on xenophobia, on prejudice, etc., that they couldn't be, uh, their past couldn't be classified as a terrorist? I think past? so. I think so. Especially because there is one other interesting clause in the law, which is about the social movements. So the law also excludes the the law from any social movement. Now, this is obviously linked to the protests and the social movements that have been happening in Brazil that were very linked to the Labour Party. So as many of these, including the former president Dilma, the former president Lula, they are very close to the social movements and they were called terrorists for being part of social movements and all this stigma about the military dictatorship. So this is very clear in the law when it says, okay, you cannot uh, apply the law for social movements. Okay. So we had all these politicians who are saying, well, we don't have a terrorist problem. Um, By actually bringing in uh, uh, terrorism into the law, we might actually um, bring terrorism into our country and so on and so forth. But your article, your chapter goes to show that actually... And at the example that you gave before in relation to financing, it goes to show that there were issues related to terrorism in Brazil prior to these laws uh, being invoked. And one of, the, one of the areas which was most affected uh, is in relation to the tri-border area with uh, Paraguay and Argentina. And you bring up the example of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as well. So could you te- detail to listeners what was, the, what was the connection between this tri-border area and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed? Well, uh, if we get the 9-11 report, it sp- explicitly say that, um, that he was in Brazil and uh, he was monitored while in Brazil and he went to the three-border area in Foz do Iguaçu city. So this is a region that has a high concentration of Muslims in Brazil. So after that, the region got uh, famous for being, or infamous for being a terrorist hotspot. Especially the Americans, they are always telling the government that uh, they should play, pay closer attention to the, the three-border area. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we do know for sure that it, you have a lot of organized crime there. A lot of the drugs, the weapons go through there. But when you talk to the practitioners, they always say that uh, they have never found anything there related to terrorism. So they say, okay, the United States say that there is, they show us the evidence and they never show. But what we can see for the cases that I bring up in the article is that the problem is actually way more widespread. So, for example, the both cases that are, we talked about, the Jihad Mira Battalion, were in Sao Paulo State. Mm-hmm. Uh, the panorama was spread among six uh, different states. And recently we have a very interesting case, which is the Operation Hashtag, which was the first case that actually was brought under the new terrorism law, where we have had people that were accused in 10 different states in Brazil. So 
So this shows that the problem is actually much more widespread than just the three-border region. And so what is this this uh, recent case? And is it involving transnational terrorism? Uh, is it... Um, what, what, what were the details around it? This case, I think they are um, quite important to show that Brazil is not immune to the threat. Mm-hmm. And that's not such a decent reality. But especially is that this kind of rhetoric and ideology can find grounds to breed in Brazil. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a very important red flag. And are you seeing and uh, connecting up to, your, to the final piece that we're going to be talking about, your book, Passport uh, to Terror? Are you finding that ISIS, Al-Qaeda and other transnational groups, they're, that they're focusing on, on Brazil and Brazilian recruitment a lot at the moment? Um, I don't think that's specifically focusing on Brazil, mm-hmm. but I think that people in Brazil might be attracted okay. by the ideology and narrative, by the propaganda, okay. for a series of reasons. Um, and moving on then to, to that book, the book that... Uh, that just at the time of recording, it's coming out this week, am I right? Yes. And it's uh, it's uh, official launch is going to be next week. So this is Passport to Terror. It's moved on from your origins in analysis of international law. Um, what exactly, uh, what was this book about? What is this book about? And what are the, the what's, what's the key take-home findings from it? Well, this book is written with... Uh, with an agent from the federal police, so it's um, my co-author, so that we would get both the practitioners and the academia side of uh, things. And uh, it also related with these recent cases that we've been seeing in Brazil. Well, we have a register of at least three Brazilians in the Islamic State that's confirmed. We also have a 17-year-old girl that left Brazil to the to join the, the Islamic State uh, recently, and now that we see the the offensive against the Islamic State and what's happening in, in Syria and all the territory that's being lost, one question is what's going to happen with all these foreign fighters afterwards, mm-hmm. right? And that's basically how Al Qaeda started, and we're seeing this over and over in history. So. Uh, Brazil started developing this interest, and as we said before, there is almost nothing in, in Portuguese. So this book tried to fit this, this space by trying to show how this is a very complex discussion. Because much of the discussion that I've seen in Brazil about foreign fighters is very simplistic and say, oh, the problem is that because of poverty, and they turn to crime and they become terrorists. Mm-hmm. And when we look at the empirical data, that's just not the case. If you look, for example, for Brazil in the last uh, five years, now we have the economic crisis, but before that Brazil grew a lot, but so did the criminality. So the economic growth actually brought more criminality rather than, than less. Okay. So one of the main missions of the book is actually to show that uh, you don't have a single cause for radicalization, but you actually have different multiple level causes. So the book is divided in three blocks. So in the first block, we look at micro factors that can push or pull the individuals for um, becoming a volunteer for the Islamic State. Mm -hmm. So we look for things from the geography and the for example, how easy it is to access the conflict zone, to geopolitical, geopolitical factors, for example, the situation in the Middle East, the American interventions in the Middle East, to a very important issue, which is the jihadists as a counterculture movement. And that refers back to what we were discussing in the beginning, the importance of culture, the nasheed, the dream interpretations, the, all the, the movements, the gestures, and so on and so forth. Then the second part would be the mass or medium level. So that works. The, looks at the immediate networks, the immediate relationships. So especially friends, family, and uh, facilitators, and how this links to facilitating, pushing, pulling, pulling these individuals. Mm-hmm. And finally, 
the last chapter looks through the micro level, what we call micro level factors that would be individual factors. So from um, egoistic reasons, so for example, money for the people who are especially close to the conflict zones, to cognitive closure, the, how they are more susceptible to black and white narratives, mm -hmm. and other individual psychological factors. So the, the book tries to show that there is not only one reason, there is not one simple answer, that is not one single case that you can generalize across the border. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the main message of the book. And you, you stated that the, your co-author is a practitioner, um, and you're coming from an academic point, uh, point of view, he's coming from a practitioner security-led point of view. Did you feel, find that you were in agreement largely, or were there, where was the, the internal conflicts for the two of you? Where was there potentially disagreement? Between? Well, uh, in the beginning of the work, we had quite a lot of uh, disagreements, mm -hmm. uh, but as he got more involved with the subject and studied more, I think uh, we got closer and closer to the, the view. Mm -hmm. um, he's uh, an agent that worked a lot of uh, border security. So that's why the, the foreign fighters and the migration link. And in the beginning, he would be very interested in things, for example, like profiling. Okay. So one big battle was to show him that uh, profiling usually don't work. Yeah, yeah. And do, would you recommend this process of uh, ac academic linking with the practitioner to, to write, a, write a book together? Was it productive for you? Yes, it was uh, very productive, and to I, I don't believe in doing the academia in a high tower. I think we should do, especially when you're doing in a very important uh, social subject as terrorism studies, mm -hmm. that we need to be close to the practitioners. Yeah. And when I see um, some of my students from the federal police, from the military police, that came in of those ideas that every Muslim is a terrorist or very absurd ideas about what is terrorism and you see them changing over time and understanding better and seeing that they were wrong and more important change their practice for better this is very rewarding so one of the things in brazil exactly because we don't have a strategy we don't have enough knowledge developed about the subject usually the subjects deal with the same frameworks as normal organized crime and many of the agents, and especially former students, they're saying, no, but that simply doesn't work. So when you see that the fact that they studied and they are bringing this to their subject, they're being able to change this in practice, it's very rewarding. That's right. That, that, is, that would be very rewarding, yes. all right. So you, you mentioned how his views changed in relation to uh, issues like profiling, etc. Did your views change at all from working with him? Yes, I think we always learn as well a lot. Um, a few things. Um, so, for example, uh, when I started, I didn't think that um, having a domestic legislation was such an important thing mm -hmm. because, you know, you can always apply the murder law or the other laws. But as I saw the daily activity of investigation and the process, you know, it, you actually need different laws you have actually have limits um with these new laws in place in brazil um and with, there's obviously been issues that we we discussed earlier about the wording of the laws the application of the laws etc where does it move from here how do you see them developing even more or is there the same um is there the same wall being built by the politicians saying no we don't need any more terrorism laws i think so actually um what happened is that what pushed the, the law in this last movement was basically the Olympic Games and the international pressure for it. Okay. So now that the Olympic Games have finished, I think the subject will come out of the agenda. Okay. So one of the things that uh, I've been working a lot in, in Brazil is to show that it's important to keep watching. That this is a part of a broader movement that will not stop just because the Olympics in Brazil is finished. On the contrary. And are there any politicians who are, who are grasping onto that agenda and making it something that 
they're going to constantly uh, be bringing up or is it more people from academia from uh, the legal from legal backgrounds they were championing it um, the politics right now they're really worried about surviving okay. this is uh, in the midst of a political mail storm mm-hmm. which where the corruption charges are basically reaching the ministers and now even the current president so I think the whole Congress the whole politician they're much more worried about political survival at this point. So I think this this will actually push the subject completely off the agenda, at least for until the next election. And we saw this actually in Brazil in the lead up to the Olympic Games, in the lead up to the World Cup as well, with the protests happening on the street. Um, what has the reaction in civil society been like now? Is it still quite vocal, quite animated, or has that dissipated as well? It has dissipated. It has uh, come down quite a lot. Mm-hmm. But... Um, the last current uh, events, it wouldn't surprise me if actually start making a, a coming back. Okay, okay. This is it's a, it's a really interesting topic, and um, best of luck with with this new book. It's um, will it be coming out in English? Do you know? Uh, we still have to check with the editors. Okay. Uh, well, I'll be hoping that it does because it, it certainly sounds fascinating and. The way I like to close up each of the interviews um, is to talk about an issue uh, which is raised in recent years about the stagna- whether there's a stagnation in terrorism research. Uh, we talked about it briefly when we were talking earlier on about uh, the dominance of English language research um, with, very, uh, with uh, very little coming out in other languages such as Portuguese. But what do you feel of the current state of, uh, of terrorism research? On a whole, outside of this issue about about uh, the English dominance. Well, uh, I'm sure that you probably heard this a lot. I think this is more or less a consensus: is that we do need to still advance in theory. Mm-hmm. I think uh, we have advanced a lot in the empirical studies. We could be better, but I think we advanced a lot. But I, I think that uh, it it still needs more developing. In the theory side, but what I would like to emphasize is not so much the English language, which that's certainly a factor, but the non-Western approaches. Mm-hmm. So I think we should also understand that uh, the same way that we say that uh, the terrorism has regional vi- variances depending on the cultural, social context that is embedded, so does counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. So the the governments they don't have the same resources, they are in a corruption reading, the civil society doesn't have the same um, (coughs) openness for anti-terror law in the same states. So I think it's it's very important to understand this difference on the counter-terrorism side as well. It's a a hugely valid point and it's it's something that we need to um, it's hard to know where where the solution lies, but it's it's something that we need to be very much introspective as as a as a community of researchers as well, and to be able to um, to develop a, an environment that that promotes this is is something that we we need to look at in the future, of course. I. I find today's discussion uh, really interesting, especially the case in relation to Brazil, because this is something we don't really hear about, um, as you were talking about with the the Western focus. It's not something uh, that would, for many of our listeners, be at the forefront of their minds. And this, this example of a country existing with a history like Brazil's without having counterterrorism legislation and to see how that work and to works and to see how that has evolved it's uh, it's a case study to that that we can learn so much about um, I would strongly urge uh, all of our listeners to to go and read George's work it's um something we can we can learn a lot about but a lot from but I think we'll leave uh, the podcast there for today uh, there's a lot to a lot to take in a lot to um 
to to think about and i think especially the the message from uh, thomas schelling's work about the the need for multiple solutions i think that can be one of our key t- take-home messages for today i'd like to, to thank george for uh for coming today uh for talking uh talking to us about about his research i'd remind you all if you want to read any of the or have links to any of the research discussed today it's all on our website uel.ac.uk forward slash Turk, that's T E or C. Follow us on Twitter at T or C U E L uh, for our most up to date information. Um, tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror. Um, I'd like to, to thank, as always, Jamie Murray for editing the podcast. And um, be sure to, to check back in uh, next week to, to listen to, uh, to our, our future podcasts. And Go back to our back issues as well. Go back to our previous uh, interviews with, uh, with people like Andrew Silk and others. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode with George. I hope you find that, found it interesting. Be sure to come back next week where I'll be talking to Dr. Kurt Braddock from Penn State University about his research into counter-narratives and his call to arms for more empirical research to be done in terrorism research. Okay, until then. Goodbye.